Today on the show, we circle back and we discuss how to do real estate inside your Roth IRA. Brian calls in to share his travel rewards win as he is leaving on vacation to Hawaii. Eileen wonders why more people don't pursue financial independence and Katie's daughter loses a tooth and wants to share it with the Chooseify community. Welcome to the ultimate crowdsource personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. guys welcome to the show today's gonna be a lot of fun i can't wait to talk about this past week episode with rich from richonmoney.com talking about building a real estate snowball machine using cash which is such an incredible concept and to help me with this i have my co-host brad here with me today how you doing buddy hey jonathan i am doing quite well it's kind of a bittersweet morning here in the baron house uh it's the first day of school so summer's over which is kind of crazy it's amazing how fast it went. And yeah, we got the girls off on the bus this morning. And I mean, now it's nine months again of just back to regular life, I guess. But yeah, we hit up the pool yesterday for the last time for the summer, which uh, again, another bittersweet thing. Oh man, so many great things come to an end. Yeah, mine, mine closed as well. And what was crazy is we went to this Labor Day event at our pool over the weekend. And I actually had two people ask me, are you that guy from Choose FI? And they had seen that Andrew Frieden interview that we did on NBC probably almost a month ago now, and they came and approached me. So, you know, for what it's worth, I don't think that I have the celebrity that you have at your pool, but uh, the fire is spreading. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the fire is definitely spreading. And it's funny, I was sitting there talking to my friends, Tim and Missy, and they listened to the podcast and we were talking about board games and how we just started playing Catan here in the house. And Jonathan, we've been playing like three games a day. So it's it's crazy. But then it was cool because I met another guy. Don at the pool who mentioned he joined our Facebook group last week and he's like, oh, I've seen Brad at the pool, but I've never talked to him. So uh, we introduced ourselves and and yeah, just had a nice little conversation. So yeah, the fire does seem to be spreading, at least at uh, Richmond, Virginia area pools. So well, maybe not just Richmond. I did just see this past week an article released in the New York Times featuring so many of our friends, almost all of whom, everybody in that article, I think has been on this podcast over the last year. Yeah, that was amazing. Talk about a a great article. And yeah, to see Scott Rickens and his wife, Taylor and Carl, they had all these great pictures in in the article. It was it was really neat to see. And we know there are a bunch more of these major media articles coming out in the near future. So stay tuned. It should be very interesting. We have been kind of in our own minds building this fever pitch that, you know, this is really grabbing the mainstream's attention. And to some degree, you have to wonder if you're in an echo chamber, you know, where you're surrounding yourself. So you're always seeing it. You know, I mean, you have a Jeep, so you see Jeeps everywhere, that sort of thing. But I got to say, I'm trying to be a little bit objective about this. And I can't recall any other point in time over the last five years where I have seen as many major mainstream publications going out there and proactively trying to highlight this community to the watching world. Yeah, you're right. And I, I certainly hear you about about that kind of Kool-Aid effect. We talk about it all the time. So to your point about seeing Jeeps, that's reticular activation, which is just a neat little I need uh, to remember that phrase. term, reticular activation. I feel like I instantly elevate the IQ in the room anytime I could drop that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think this really is spreading and and we are seeing it everywhere now. It's pretty amazing. Even at the FinCon conference that we're going to here in a couple of weeks, I know last year when we were talking to the organizer, he was saying that it seems like the FI movement is really even taking over personal finance. That's where he sees this going. And to your point, as I don't want to steal your thunder, but it's almost like personal finance. Like what, what do you say? I fell asleep five minutes ago, but you start <laughs> talking about FI and it's like, holy cow, you mean I can get my life back? 
I can have some power over my life. I can pursue what I want. It's just so obvious once you get into it. And Kool-Aid or no Kool-Aid, to me, it seems very, very obvious. Well, Brad, I don't know if you stole my thunder, but you're definitely spreading it. So uh, I'm happy to share it with you and glad that it can be put out there for digestion. But speaking of our buddy Scott, I think this is really cool that he was actually featured in that New York Times article along with Bryson Christie and Carl from Mr. 1500. But in particular, with Scott talking about this documentary, if the mainstream media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Money Magazine, Time Magazine, if all of these entities are priming the public at large for the fact that there are people that are winning at this game of personal finance and they're having a great time doing it. In many cases, they're doing this on a median salary or below. You know, this is something that is replicable. People from all walks of life can accomplish this. Then if they're priming the public for this message, when this documentary hits at the beginning of next year, it's going to explode, man. I mean, it is, this is a powder keg and to be able to take these powerful ideas encapsulate them in a in a video format that could have mass distribution. We could be talking about not tens of thousands of people, not hundreds of thousands of people, but millions and millions of people for the first time being shown this alternate path to financial independence, this amazing road less traveled. I'm, I, I get chills down my arm just thinking about the impact that this documentary is going to have on society. Yeah, I completely agree. And and yeah, you just don't know don't know where it's going to go, but it, it's certainly based on everything we've heard and seen from Scott and his entire crew. This is a top caliber movie, and I'm just so excited to see it. I'm like begging him to see to see it early, and he won't he won't relent. Obviously, but uh, a couple months we all have to wait. And I think they are going to do a Kickstarter campaign here in the next month or two, and we certainly will keep you guys updated when that goes live. I know there's going to be a lot of neat little offering levels and such to, to help support what they're doing. So certainly to be continued, but Scott definitely just gave us a quick heads up on that and, and we will keep you all apprised. And my understanding from what he was telling us is that this is no longer a fundraiser to get the movie made. We have gotten to the point where all the footage has been filmed. This is to help it have more of an impact. This is to get help it reach the millions and millions of people that we aspire to reach with this documentary. And it's to give it all the little post-production elements that take a movie from being okay to making it a memorable lasting effect. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely keep you guys in the loop with that, but I know there's going to be a couple things that they're going to do. One is this Kickstarter campaign. And then I know he's also mentioning to us, Brad, that there is going to be a, a road tour and a screening tour along with this documentary. And I know that I went to my wife and I told her, Hey, give you the heads up. I want to carve out, you know, up to three weeks to go do some of these screenings. And I got her to sign off on it. So January of next year, I, and I, and I, I'm hoping you as well. I, you have, I don't know if you've actually done the same with Laura. You may be pushing this back a little bit. Yeah. Laura's hearing about it for the first time right now, <laughs> but Sorry, I got honey, permission. You, <laughs> you've been Jonathan sandbag. Like I usually. <laughs> but anyways, I, I, you know, I'm hoping obviously it's going to be both me and you on this road trip and being able to take a couple weeks and go and do some of these screenings. How amazing would that be? Yeah, it would be really, really cool. And big and small cities alike. Yeah, we'll get to meet a lot of our local groups and who knows who will come out, who lives in the area, what other five names and, and such. So people we've met before, it should be really wonderful. I'm excited. So there were a couple other things I wanted to mention before I hop into this episode with Rich and there's so much to cover here, but real quick, the biggest thing, the biggest update is that I went and talked to Danny about doing a vegetarian challenge and uh, she went for it. So we are plotting over the next two weeks to have a meatless week. And and I could almost see us going vegan, but it seemed easier just to set the bar at vegetarian and start with that. I'm very interested in sharing all of the behind the scenes on what that looks like, sharing the meals that we end up using, maybe even doing some sort of cost analysis to see you know how much it costs. But the reason I wanted to talk about it is for me, it's all about cutting through resistance in terms of making meals. I have found historically, I've mentioned this before that I love buying cookbooks, but then I am horrible at actually opening them and using them. Basically, I go and I find the cookbooks with the pretty pictures, you know, every two or three or four pages, and then I get them home. And then as soon as they're home, now suddenly what had that appeal for me on the shelf no longer has appeal now that it's sitting in my kitchen and I don't actually want to make the recipe. Oh, and actually, I don't even mind making the recipe, but I don't want to go to the grocery store and actually buy the darn groceries. And part of that is just, how do you get from a book to a shopping list, from a shopping list to a recipe, what's your process? And so, Brad, I'm ready to roll out for you my new system. Are you ready for this? 
Sounds intriguing. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. All right. So there's different productivity tools that really make your life easy. And so for instance, although in theory, I love cookbooks, practically speaking, you got to get these things digitalized or it's not going to happen. At least for me, I know not everybody is in the situation. So I actually prefer using Pinterest and pinning my meals just as an easy place to have all the pictures right there in place with the ingredients right below that. Once you get your Pinterest image in place or your recipe saved in place, I then copy all of the ingredients specifically to a shopping list. Now that is actually slightly more challenging than it sounds. Ultimately, what you want to get is it into some sort of shopping list that you have on your phone that you can then check the box. Once you actually have it, you can start with your pantry and go through your pantry and check off the things you actually have in your inventory. And it took me a while to really figure out a good solution. And so while I love Todoist for doing activities, I have not found it to be as useful for shopping lists. So my new favorite grocery shopping list app is called Wonderlist. And that is with a U instead of the O, W-U-N-D-E-R-L-I-S-T. Wonderlist is great, but that would still involve me entering in my ingredients one at a time, which could be a little bit obnoxious. So instead, what I found that you can do is there's this little tiny little website app that you can link to Wonderlist to like load in like a notepad, you know, with no formatting, just all your individual lines of ingredients. You just copy and paste it into this little web app and then it automatically uploads it to Wonderlist. And then you have Wonderlist right there. You take that to your pantries, you go check off what you need. Then you go to the grocery store, you check out, you get the ingredients you need, you bring all those back. And then now you're ready to do this. And then what I have found the best thing possible is we have like this old iPad. I actually mount that in my kitchen with behind these 3M hooks. I'm gonna take a picture of it and put it in the show notes for today's episode. And that is right there in the kitchen and everything's right in front of us and we can start churning out these recipes. Did that just confuse you or was that a decent <laughs> <laughs> No, that was great. All right, That's cool. very cool. I'm curious. So obviously actionable tips, right? That's what we're all about. What is this little web app? You didn't mention what it's called. Yeah. And that's because it doesn't have like a great name. It took me forever to find it. It's this guy that just found a problem and decided to make it uh, to solve the problem. Like Wonderlist is great, but how do I get from a notepad with 20 different lines to uploading these in there? Like if you're going to use Evernote or something like that, you'd have to go load them in and do all this formatting. It's just a pain. And so the actual name of this app is Wonderlist Parser Hero Co-app.com. So as I said, uh-huh. I will just link to this in the show notes as really useful little piece of code. It makes your life easier. So that'll be in the show notes for today's episode. But these three different pieces have allowed me to cut through resistance. And I think that this is really another way of looking at cutting through resistance. What actually keeps you from accomplishing your goals, whether it be working out, whether it be eating healthy, whether it be drinking more water all these productivity tools that we talk about, they can't add complexity. They need to be eliminating these points of resistance in your life. And I think as you look at your day and you look at who is the person that I want to be, what is that person actually doing? What's keeping me from doing that? You can look at those pain points and knock them out. So for me, it was literally that, how do I get from having this book sitting on my counter to something that I can have with me at the grocery store, to something that I can have mounted on my wall as I'm actually cooking? This is what allowed me to bypass that this simple process. Well, simple may not be the right word. (laughs) (laughs) No, that sounds good though. I like it. Definitely keep us updated as you, as you move forward with that. I could do like, like a tutorial video or something. Maybe it's like a YouTube video. I do. I do need to parse it out a little bit farther, but I think there's really something here. Basically we need to get to the point from all these great looking, you know, menus and recipes that are in cookbooks and on Pinterest. And we need to actually start making them. That's the key, right? And, And actually this is an interesting point because If vegetarian just means beans and rice without flavor, why would anybody do that? Why would you do that? But the problem is when you see these recipes in these cookbooks, they look like they have like 20 hours of preparation. I think that's part of, in my mind, something that keeps me from doing things. I I need to be very comfortable with the recipe and you need to make a recipe more than once in order to be very comfortable with it. You know, that first time that you're doing a recipe and Brad, I know you don't know because Laura takes care of all this for you, but the person that's cooking, when they go to it and they have to dig through those items, if it is like a three hour process, you kind of just start and then you're like, you know what? Maybe we'll just go back to uh, ramen. That would just be easier. But once you've done it a couple of times, you realize what's necessary and what you can just kind of breeze right through. And then as soon as you can cut down the resistance of this new process, now you're making it all the time. Now it makes it into the Barrett's top 50. The mythical top 50. Yep. But yeah. <laughs> Looks a lot right. more like a top 10 right now. <laughs> <laughs> But no, that's cool. And taking action is what it's all about. So yeah, I love, I love that entire 
conversation there, certainly about cutting down our resistance. So I, I think everybody should look for pain points in their life just generally. And there's probably somebody else, like you said, with this guy who created this tiny little web app, he had the same problem you did and he wrote a program to fix it. So almost invariably, if you have a problem, somebody else does. Either A, that means they've come up with a solution or some one of those many thousands or hundreds of thousands of people has come up with a solution or B, you have a business opportunity, right? Which is not insignificant. That's how we should all in the Phi community go through life is if you have these problems, look for these little pain points, look to be 1% better. And again, almost invariably, there's going to be a solution for it. But if not, you have an opportunity. So what a kind of cool, like growth mindset way to go through life. I love that. That's absolutely what it's about. And you start seeing opportunities everywhere. If it isn't there, build it, right? I mean, that's like you win either way by looking for pain points in your life and then solving those problems. I, I wonder how many businesses are started just because of that simple idea. And talking about pain points in a really crazy way, that's what this past week's episode with Rich was about. And there were a couple pain points that he solved, but one of them in my mind is if there's no great real estate in your specific area, like you just have this hot market, it would be a horrible investment area because you've already missed it. Then the pain point would be, well, how do I find real estate that would be a great investment in other areas. This episode covered that. The other part of that was, what does it look like to build a team of people that can actually do this? This episode covered that. What would it be like to build a relationship with a property management and allow them to handle all of this for me in-house? Somehow through the power of networking, through the power of relationships, he was able to accomplish this and he was able to expand their model and it was a win-win. This isn't something that at the end of the day, is actually causing more trouble for them. This actually added to their business model in this specific case, but it was based on trust. I was just incredibly impressed by, you know, Rich's entire story through the real estate world. And I found it one that I would like to emulate his model in many ways. Yeah, this is the exact type of real estate investing that appeals to me. And as you said, I, I was kind of in rare form on this episode, absolutely pestering him with questions because it's just, it's so interesting to me. That kind of snowball where you can continue to take the income from these properties and then just buy additional ones. That to me is the dream. You build a system that just works. In my personal perfect world, I probably wouldn't have all of my properties in one particular city, but for Rich, it works, obviously. But that said, you build a system where you can buy these in cash, and obviously a lot of people enjoy leverage, that that's a way for them to grow, but for me and my kind of conservative financial outlook, I just love how he paid these things off and just continued to buy. It's just such a neat, idea where you can just look at it as a business. And I think this is where a lot of people, Jonathan, to your point about the pain point about real estate in your area. I think a lot of people get hung up on, oh, I'd love to do rental real estate, but the house next door to me is $350,000 and it only rents for 2000. That's obviously nowhere near the 1% rule. It's slightly above the 0.5% rule. So I think what people kind of get bogged down is that where you live isn't by definition a good investment as a real estate business. And that's the crucial word, business. You need to run these numbers as if you were a CEO or as if you were an accountant. And you go through and say, okay, does this pass the test? Is there net income here? Because at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about. Appreciation is speculation. So if you just take appreciation out of this entirely. Because I think so many people get bogged down in, oh, San Francisco, that house was 400,000 and now it's 800,000 or New York City or, I mean, those are anomalous situations. You can't look to anomalies when you're trying to build a system and you're trying to build a business. You take appreciation out of it. If appreciation happens, wonderful. That's great. Obviously you're laughing all the way to the bank. But if you just exclude that and just look at the numbers, you take the 1% rule and then the 50% rule. Those are kind of like the two numbers that I've gleaned as just doing a little bit of research on rental real estate investment. Those are just, does it fit these criteria? And it doesn't mean that every property that fits those criteria is going to be a slam dunk, clearly. But those are just these 
mental frameworks to say, okay, does it fit this? If yes, it's worth looking into more. If no, I'm going to put it to the side. There's probably a better deal. So the 1% rule very simply is you take the purchase price, you multiply that by 1% and is that your monthly rent or higher? In this case, let's say a hundred thousand dollar house. 1% of that would be a thousand dollars a month. Are you able to rent that property for a thousand dollars per month or more? If yes, then it meets the 1% rule. So pretty simple, right, Jonathan? Yeah. And doesn't that actually present you with almost an opportunity either single way? So if it's rent versus buy, the 1% rule kind of gives you a guiding light for whether or not it would be a better idea to buy in a particular location as opposed to rent in a particular location, which means that to some degree for a specific individual, there's always a relative way to win. Not to say that you should buy every house, but it gives you information. It gives you an incredible amount of information on a geographic location just by understanding what goes into that number. Yeah, Jonathan, that is a brilliant point. That's just a cool way of looking at if you're actually going to rent, would this make sense for you to buy or not? And yeah, that's that's cool. And the example that I gave of like the 300 or $350,000 house that rents for maybe 1800 to 2000, that's what's in my local neighborhood. So in that case, if you're at the 0.5% rule, my response is, how is this landlord making any money from this? This doesn't make sense to me, but obviously it's neither here nor there. It's just- Maybe you should go next door and tell them about the 1% rule. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I'll get the uh, door promptly slammed in my face, right? But, uh, but no, and then just talking real quick about the, the 50% rule, and I, I don't want to confuse people here, but I guess they say that roughly 50% of your gross income, you can expect to be expenses. Let's say again, in this hypothetical, you're, you bought a hundred thousand dollar property. It meets the 1% rule at a thousand dollars a month. You can expect there to be about $500 a month in total expenses. So that isn't going to be exactly 500 every month, but what that means is over a calendar year, you should expect somewhere in the vicinity of $6,000 in total expenses, the 500 per month times 12. That again, also gives you some way to disqualify properties, right? If this was in a high tax area where let's say the taxes, even on a smaller or less expensive $100,000 house, let's say they're 4,000 a year. Well, that in all likelihood is going to push you over that 50% rule, right? It's hard to imagine with the property manager's fee and then having to fix anything, et cetera, and factoring in for capital improvements and vacancies and all this stuff that your other expenses are going to only amount to 2000 a year. It's hard to imagine that you would hit that 50% rule or less if you had 4,000 in taxes. So again, I'm trying to build a mental framework of like how I would approach this because there are thousands and thousands of these houses out there to potentially sift through and you need some way to do that, some mechanism. So I think that's kind of cool. So yeah, I mean, I guess rich on a $100,000 investment would expect based on those two rules. And now granted, he was getting more than the 1% rule, he was saying, on the top line gross income, which is great. But even if he was getting the 1% and it was 50% in expenses, he would net about $6,000 a year in profit on that $100,000 investment, which you know is, is a 6% return, which is not setting the world on fire, but still pretty darn good. And that's factoring in that full 50% of expenses. So it's definitely an interesting look, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And then the other part of that that really resonated with me, and I mentioned it in that particular episode, is just when you're looking at the FI community, this is not a community that's necessarily looking for creative financing. We're just not the target market for that. And when the reason I wanted to point that out is I feel like so many gurus that are out there, so many paid classes that are out there are marketed to people that are really not in very good financial shape and frankly would have trouble mustering even a $5,000 down payment and they're selling them this hope and dream of all these crazy ways that you can do it with no money down And a lot of times that just jacks up the risk level and it puts these people in potentially very dangerous situations from a financial perspective. Whereas with our community, we can wait. We can wait for the opportunity because we already have these other vehicles that are working for us. Real estate is a diversification tool and you may have your own talents 
and your own inclinations for which path that you want to follow, but you don't have to. You're going to be okay either way, which means that because you're operating from a place of financial strength, you're able to wait for when the deal makes sense. And when it does make sense, you can jump on it. I just wanted to highlight that for our community because if you're already following all the principles that have been listed up to this particular point in time, everything just gets easier. And I think that's something that I'm telling myself. We have all of these built-in advantages. I'm no longer going around Googling, how do I finance an apartment complex with zero money down? That's just not something that holds my attention. That's not something that I'm interested in. That's not something that I need to pursue. And I think that reflects a large percentage of our audience as well. We just want to know, Kind of, we kind of lean towards your bent a little bit, Brad. What is a, a conservative but guaranteed path to wealth? Yeah, I think that's what it's all about. And like you said, that diversification play, there's so much value there. I think that appeals to me. Like I was just going through that example there of saying that's a 6% return, which is really not that phenomenal. And that kind of hits that 1% rule and the 50% rule. When a lot of people approach rental real estate, they can't even sniff that 1% rule. So I'm wondering how people make any kind of money off this, not less a decent return. But that said, the power of being in the FI community, like Rich said, the power of having cash when buying properties, it enabled him to make a ton of these lowball offers on lots of properties. You just never know when you're going to get a motivated seller or some kind of short sale or who knows, something might fall into your lap that they're just looking to get rid of it. And if you have that cash, you're in such a position of strength, then the numbers work out even more to your benefit, right? So Rich isn't getting just a 6% return on his money. It sounds more like if he's at the 1.5, he's getting, who knows, 9% in all likelihood, but plus or minus a little bit. That's a pretty darn good return, especially when you have 20 of these properties like he does. And of course, he still has his military pension, which is not insignificant. Plus, he's been maxing out his TSP and his Roth IRA. So he obviously has index funds and and mutual funds and the like. So he's got that built in diversification with really the best of all worlds. And I'm trying to remember if we actually dived into the numbers, but for where he is at now, he's estimating that he's bringing home around $400 a month in profit for each one of these doors that he has. And he has 20 doors. So that means that he has created for himself a portfolio that's generating around $8,000 a month in profit, essentially, that's just going straight into the bank for him. And that's even after he set aside money for all of his maintenance costs for having tenants not be there for a particular month. So it's just incredible that in a relatively short period of time, He's been able to get to a point where he's probably going to at least double the income that he's going to be bringing in from his pension when he leaves. That's that's really, really remarkable. Yeah. Eight thousand dollars a month is essentially one hundred thousand dollars a year. So he's built this portfolio for himself that generates one hundred K in net income from these 20 low cost properties in Montgomery, Alabama. That is really pretty amazing. So I love the snowball concept of this. I I just love everything that Rich is doing, how he built this system. He said he started with this management company from day one because he wanted to work out the kinks before he moved away. And he wanted to put this entire ecosystem into place where everybody had their little job, everybody had their place, and he didn't have to do it. If he was stationed in Korea or Hawaii or who knows where, obviously he's not going to fix a broken sink at one of these houses in Montgomery, Alabama. That just goes without saying. So what he needs to do is he needs to build this structure that just works. So he needed to trust this management company and that he saw amazing benefits from down the road when they actually helped facilitate some of these rehabs, which is something that is so far outside of the bounds of what a normal property management company does, but it's because he built that relationship. He trusted them, he earned their trust, and it was this really wonderful system. They probably made more money than they would have with just a general landlord off the street, right? And he has 20 properties and presumably is gonna buy more. So it's this virtuous circle here where everybody benefits. And most importantly, he looked at it as a business. So do the numbers make sense, even with this property manager built in? If yes, then this is a viable business strategy. And obviously it's worked exceedingly well to the tune of 100K in income a year. 
And there's something else that you said there in terms of building your ecosystem that I wanted to come back to. And it's a slight pivot on that because this isn't exactly what Rich did because he had this property management in place, but it's this idea of building your team. And something has really stood out to me over the last couple of months because we have this incredible opportunity with the local groups to actually allow people to source and share trusted team members in these different areas of life. And so to share with you in particular right now, I, over the last probably two years, have put together a, a team, my own team of individuals who I would trust implicitly with different types of jobs. Most recently, I have a plumber now, my go-to guy that I would call if I needed any work done. And obviously, if I had some properties, this is who I would use as well. But I also have a handyman. I have a tree service that I, that I you know, I just have all of their numbers. And I also right beside them, have a list of people that have done horrible jobs that I would never call and I would never send to anybody. But if you could kind of start to source the best of in your community, electrician would be another one. If you had someone, an HVAC guy, or if you had someone that really does incredible construction work, these types of individuals, when you find someone that is a keeper, you hold on to them and you don't just hold on to them, but you make sure that all of your peers, all the people in your local area that you want to get the same type of service are also aware of them as well. Word of mouth is something that to some degree, I think we've outsourced to Google or you know whatever search engine is doing that, maybe Angie's List, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is so much more powerful when you have a personal recommendation from someone that gets it, that understands what you're looking for. And I think that in my mind, like we've started to pilot this in a few of our local areas with doing some sorts of tool co-ops and tool shares. What we could very easily do, especially for local real estate investors, is have people share team members in these particular areas that do incredible work at reasonable prices. You can give them very steady work. And at the same time, it can allow you to expand your reach in your local community. Jonathan, you know I'm all about crowdsourcing. So I just love that on every level. And I think every single local group should be doing something like that, not just with contractors, but but who knows? I mean, they, any resource that they use that they've found benefit from, if you can crowdsource that and, and each individual person who's looking to, let's say, hire someone in, in this particular case, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They don't have to fly blind. They have a community of financially independent people who have already vetted these, these contractors or whomever it may be. There's just so much power there. And yeah, I really hope that a lot of the local admins and shoes of eye local members listening to this really start that up in the Facebook groups. It can just benefit everyone. All right, guys, well, I told you on Monday that we were going to be playing the how to do real estate in your Roth IRA, which is a very, very interesting look. So I'm going to go ahead and cue that segment for you right now. All right, Rich, we cannot not talk about this because I've been fascinated by this. I've kind of heard about it at the periphery, probably the same way you did. But the difference is, you know, you have actually taken action on this. What does it look like to have property in an IRA? You know, what does that Google search look like? And then what do you actually need to do? And what are the benefits? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we just, we kind of did it. I, I think there's a couple of different ways to do it. I mean, you can own property in your IRA, even if you have it in with a mortgage. I think it might be slightly more complicated, but in our case, it's a paid off property. So we just own it in the IRA outright. What we had to do was I had money in, at USAA, which is, you know, a military bank. I had my Roth IRA there. And I had to sell, I had to sell my S&P 500 index fund, sell it into cash. And then I had to move it to a company that was a self-directed IRA. Once it was moved over to that company, then there was kind of a semi-complicated process of filling out certain forms and doing certain things. When I knew that I wanted to buy the property, I don't necessarily buy the property, the IRA company buys the property for me, you know, so you have to tell them I'm buying this property. They have to fill out the forms and kind of like they buy it for you. It's kind of a strange thing, but they buy it for you and then they just sort of keep it for you in your name. And that's kind of how it works. Okay. That makes sense. So the IRA company, that's not USAA, right? Right. It's not USA. So I transferred it. I did like a rollover almost. I, I transferred the money from USAA to a different company, which is a self-directed IRA company, once the money was there in cash, then they were able to purchase the house for me and stick it in my Roth IRA in my name. What is the advantage for somebody doing this? Why would someone go through this complicated jumping through hoops process? 
it's kind of funny how we decided to do this because a couple of years ago, kind of the first year where we had like a lot of income from rental properties, we ended up having like a very large tax bill. My wife's kind of like, oh my God, like I can't believe we paid that much money in taxes. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, because it's all rental income, it's all like pure income. And she's like, well, geez, you know, and she's like, well, how do you avoid that? And I said, well, you really can't. I mean, you know, it's all, whatever comes in as rent is, is taxable income. And then I said, well, I mean, if you bought a house in an IRA, like whatever came in from rent would not be taxable and it wouldn't be taxed ever. And she's like, well, what do you mean? And I explained to her, well, if it's in a Roth IRA, you buy the house in a Roth IRA, whatever money comes in as rent isn't taxed. You don't have to report it as income. And she's kind of like, well, wait a second. That sounds kind of cool. And I'm like, yeah, it does sound kind of cool. Your wife is so, so we awesome. Just, <laughs> so we just, we decided to do it. So we both took our Roth IRAs and we decided to buy houses with them. We love houses. So we doubled down again on houses and switched our IRAs over to houses. One last question on this. Because you bought this inside of a Roth IRA, did that mean that you had to get enough saved up in your two Roth IRAs to be able to afford to buy the house? Like what if you had only had $10,000 in the Roth when you're ready to buy the home? Does that make it complicated? Yeah, it's a really good question. All that's very tricky. So I haven't done this. I'm not like the expert on this, but I think if I would have had less money, I think you can use a loan to buy a house in your IRA. I think there's a way to do that. So like if you had $10,000, or, you know, if you had like, let's say I had $100,000, I think you could use that as a down payment and use a loan to buy a house that costs a lot more. There's a way of doing that. But I paid cash. So just to make things simple, like I bought a house, let's say I buy a house for $50,000 in my Roth IRA. The tricky part is you have to have enough money to make repairs. Like if you have to replace a roof, you have to be able to do that with money that's already in your IRA. You can't just come in with your own personal money and fix the roof because then you're mingling normal money with money that's supposed to be in an IRA. And that's like a big no-no. And the same with you and your wife, right? So you both had to get, you got your own house. You each have your own house. You have to make sure that there's enough extra money in your account to take care of things that might come up. As rent's building up in there, let's say that I, for several years, I just kept collecting rent. And and also every year I can keep putting in whatever, $5,500, you know, right, uh, you know, for, for that year's maximum for an IRA, at a certain point, I could buy another property, but I'd have to have the same thing again. I'd have to have enough extra money in there to handle emergencies on either of those properties. Another thing to keep in mind, too, is that there are fees. They're not like crazy high fees, but there are fees. Like they charge me for every house that's in my IRA. They'll charge me for every house every quarter. Okay, you own two houses, so they charge me a couple bucks for each house each quarter, and they like charge you, you know, some money when you buy the house. And there's just kind of like random fees in there, much more so than like a normal IRA, which might have no fees or very little fees. My mind is blown, Brad. This is yet another reason that we need to spend more time talking about the Roth, right? <laughs> yeah, I totally hear you, Jonathan. That's something I'd never heard of before in my entire life. So definitely gonna research that personally. So thank you, Rich. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope that was beneficial. This is some really cool stuff that's very high level and was not something that I was familiar with, but I think there's a real opportunity for the individual that can start thinking that way from a very early age and maybe some real opportunities there. Okay, well, let's go ahead and crowdsource the remainder of the show. First, I wanted to start by playing a voicemail that we got from Brian talking about travel rewards and Hawaii. Hey, Brad and Jonathan, this is Brian from New Hampshire calling to uh, let you know I just finished listening uh, to uh, podcast number 77, Advanced Travel Awards with Marla Tanner. Hey, I couldn't stop smiling through that whole podcast as I am listening on August 28th and my wife and I are departing for Hawaii on the 2nd of September for three weeks, which we're flying out for free uh, using points on United. Uh, signed up for the Chase Preferred Credit Card. That got me 50,000 points and got my wife out on those points. I already had points on United. Then uh, we arrive in Kauai to start our trip for one week, all covered by points. Uh, Three nights at the Hilton Garden Inn and then four nights at the Grand Hyatt using the credit card program that they were offering that they no longer do for a uh, new sign up. You get two free nights at any resort. So I signed up, she signed up. So that whole first week is covered. 
Then we're going to pay for a flight from Kauai over to Hilo. And uh, we're staying at the Doubletree there in Hilo for, for two nights for free. I saw my wife up for the American Express Hilton card. So those are free. Then we're heading over to the other side to Waikoloa and uh, staying at a Marriott for one night for free. And then over to the Hilton Waikoloa Village for uh, three nights for free using my points on the Hilton. And then uh, the last full week, I will pay for a condo with some friends, two-bedroom. And then we fly home on the 23rd, or actually it's the 22nd, getting home on the 23rd for free. So uh, thanks for that episode. Couldn't help but listen and hear about the comments made about Hawaii and smiling as I'll be doing that trip here in the next couple of days, mainly on point. So uh, as of right now, we have the condo, which will cost us maybe 1300 bucks, And of course, any food and rental car. For three weeks, uh, we think we can do it in a budget of two grand. That's the car. And the one week, of course, doesn't include food. But we're excited. And in addition, I heard that you guys are talking or mentioned the IHG, another great card. Just uh, two weekends ago, my wife and I went down to Boston. And we usually do this once a year with the Hilton, or excuse me, with the, the Holiday Inn Reward Program. Uh, stayed at the Intercontinental and this last time at the Kimpton, which is now part of that uh, program. Stayed for free in about a $400 per night hotel right in downtown Boston. So uh, enjoyed your episode. Wanted to share that with you. Mahalo. And maybe I'll talk to you when I return. Take care. Thanks for the good work. Bye. Wow, Brian, congratulations. That is an incredible trip and just well done with travel rewards generally. Not to mention that IHG free annual night that you used at an intercontinental. I mean, that's a that's a great redemption in and of itself. And to get three weeks to Hawaii for all in under two thousand dollars, including food and car, that's not too shabby. So that is really amazing. I it's funny, I mentioned recently on a Friday roundup that we're planning a Hawaiian trip for next August. So this is very fresh in my mind, and I'm trying to figure out what's going to make the most sense. And very jealous of your upcoming trip, or I guess you're actually on it right now. And uh, hopefully I'll be joining you next year. And yeah, just one tip for the listeners out there. Brian mentioned a bunch of credit cards, including the Chase Sapphire Preferred, which is our number one card for people getting started. We love those Chase Ultimate Rewards points. Those are exceedingly valuable, and you can transfer them to a number of different airline and hotel partners, including actually Hyatt, which you could use in Hawaii, or United, which is another great option. So that's actually what Brian did. And then, yeah, he mentioned just a couple of different hotel rewards programs. You can use Hilton, or there's a Hyatt card. I know Laura and I just opened that recently, and it has a 60,000-point bonus currently as of the date of recording of this on uh, September 4th, 2018. And we are going to use those high points to great effect. I mean, we use them generally at their lower level, category one and two hotels, which are only 5,000 and 8,000 points per night, respectively. So for a 60,000 point bonus, you can get 12 free nights at a category one just from that Hyatt card. So yeah, there's lots and lots of options. And I would actually add on to Brian, like if he wanted to even save on the rental car, he could have opened a card like the Capital One Venture, which you can use for any type of travel expense. So you just pay for the travel with your credit card. Nobody knows or cares that you have points. Let's say you're buying a flight or hotel through Expedia or Travelocity or something or through the airline or buying a rental car. You just pay for it with that credit card and then you can wipe out the expense afterwards. So it's it's a really, really easy card to use. So, yeah, anyway, I just wanted to mention that since he he did talk in depth about the cards that he used. Well, and to expand that, I believe that card, the Venture and the Barclays, that can also be used on cruises as well using the same logic. Yeah, you're right. The Barclay card Arrival Plus is the card that you're referring to. So yeah, you can use those for really anything that codes as travel. So it just depends on, it, it's this kind of obscure thing. The merchant category code is what it's called. But essentially, it's any type of legitimate travel that, that you can think of. It's cruises, it's hotels, it's airfare, it's rental cars, it's anything through a, a travel agency generally that you book. So really, if it's a legitimate travel expense, there's a very high likelihood it's going to code as travel. So uh, yeah, that's why we do like those cards in general. And if you find a good deal, 
that's kind of one of the nice aspects of of those kind of cards is if you find a really great deal, well, your points go further, right? So you find a hotel room for $79 a night, that only costs you 7,900 points. So your points go further, the better deals you find. So obviously people in the FI community are always looking for a deal. That's why those cards can probably get you more value than just a regular person off the street, I would say. You know, what's interesting about that is within the past month, our travel rewards episode, episode nine became our most downloaded episode of all time, Brad. Oh, wow. No kidding. That's a surprise to me. Would you like to know what the top five most popular episodes are currently? (laughs) I'm telling you, it's a horse race because they do change, but I'll give you the top five. Okay, let's do it. All right. So travel rewards at number one for the longest time. It was JL Collins, the stock series, part one, episode 19. Right behind that in our third position is actually episode five, why everyone needs Dave Ramsey and why you should ignore him. The next spot, so position four is the Pillars of Phi, episode 21. And then the final spot in that top five episodes, most downloaded episodes of all time is our episode 12, Living Frugal with the Frugal Woods, how to save 75% of your take-home pay. And uh, yeah, that's currently the top five episodes in our catalog kind of cool, right? Yeah, that is cool. I am pleasantly surprised to see Liz come in at number five. That was a wonderful episode. I don't go through the stats like you do. So yeah, this is news to me entirely. And yeah, it's interesting that I guess it kind of stands to reason that the episodes that have been around the longest are more downloaded than than others. But yeah, it's interesting that all of them are in the first 21 episodes we produced. Well, episode 12, if you think about that with Liz, that was actually the first time that we ever interviewed a guest. And I would say that Our process has changed just a little bit (laughs) since then, but I think it holds up relatively well. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to go back and listen to it. That's very cool. All right. So let's go ahead and read this question we got from Eileen. This was actually in our Facebook group, and I think it's kind of interesting because it's kind of tied to the article that we were talking about earlier from the New York Times talking about financial independence. But her question is, why don't more people pursue financial independence? And there was a lot of feedback on the Facebook group that I thought that we could start with. And then, Brad, I would love to get your input as well. So here is her question in full. And she says, my husband and I have been discussing this quite a bit lately. And he pointed out that he thinks that most people don't pursue FI in large part because their friends and family aren't doing it. We tend to gravitate toward lifestyles that are similar to those we spend the most time with, which is why as members of the FI community, we often feel like outliers, something that most people aren't comfortable with. I added that I thought people don't pursue it not only because others they know are not pursuing it, but also because they know that if they did pursue it, those others in their life would give them a hard time, making them feel bad for their frugal or disciplined choices. Eventually, it's tempting to just give in, and I could imagine this could be very discouraging to those looking to take such huge steps to pursue FI without the support of their friends and loved ones. So then she just kind of opened this up to the community to get their input. Cody weighed in and said that, There's two things that really stand out to him. One is that people just generally don't understand the math of it and they aren't willing to find contentment with what they have. They're always looking to add more materialistic goods to kind of add to their personal life situation. And there's a bunch more input, which maybe I'll kind of weigh in as we go through this. But I'm really curious, Brad, as I kind of read through that, what were your thoughts? Yeah, Jonathan, this is a complex question. I don't think there's a simple answer for it. I think it would be nice if we all could just have some tidy little answer and then that would be a response. Then we could try to help people get onto this path. But it, it's just not that simple. It's I think a lot of it derives from there not being financial education and most people just don't have any sense of what to do. Like, I think there's this, as you're growing up, there's this myth that, oh, your parents have it all figured out and, and they know what they're doing in life and all these adults have it figured out. But as you get older and I'm 39 now, which is crazy to to say. You're an adult, Brad. Yeah, I guess I am an adult. (laughs) You realize all your friends, they don't have any idea what they're doing. They're barely adults, you know, like, even though I guess to all outward appearances they are, but nobody ever learned. It sounds crazy because most of these people spend all of their money, if not more than all of their money, to imagine that they could all of a sudden start saving 30, 50, 70 percent of their income. That sounds so ludicrous as to saying that the sky is purple. It's akin to that. It is an impossibility to them. So a lot of people just don't even open up their mind to the possibility of it. Also, I think a lot of people are afraid that they're getting sold a bill of goods just in general. 
oh, if it sounds too good to be true, it is kind of thing. And people don't take the time to actually investigate something. So to me, I usually look at the level of credibility of the source. That's what I look at, maybe more so than the actual information at first glance. Like that's my mental model for how I approach something. If the credibility of the source is legitimate, then it's probably something that I should look into. Not to pat myself on the back or say that I'm I'm something fantastic, but I'm fairly credible. Like you talk to me, all right, I'm reasonably intelligent. I have my head on straight. We have a nice, happy family. We're doing okay. If I'm telling you something about how I'm gonna save 50% of my money, I would hope that the normal response wouldn't be, oh, that guy's a crackpot. What is he talking about? Like it should be, oh, that's really interesting. Maybe I'll look into it. Maybe I'll look at that link that he sent me from his podcast or Mr. Money Mustache or whatever it may be. So I think a lot of people aren't able to discern what's real information and what isn't. So they just kind of shut it out because they think that they're they're gonna get hoodwinked in some way. Unfortunately, people oftentimes, and this is a broad brush, but they don't take action. They kind of think they have their lives figured out and they're happy and it's just, why would I do that? Again, that's a broad brush and it's probably unfair, but I just don't think there's like a pressing need for a lot of people oh, we're happy with our lives. We go on our vacation. We have our nice cars. Everything's great. We make a good income. Why would I do that? Why would I deprive myself? So I think it's that kind of reflexive answer. And yeah, I think that just leads people to not investigate and not take action. So I don't know, Jonathan, that's kind of my long-winded answer, but but do you have any thoughts? I actually have a bunch of thoughts. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blown away. <laughs> okay. So I was thinking back to my like teenage self that was getting explained by the HR department why I should invest in my 401k and I'm going to sleep. And there were a couple things that came to mind because it just didn't resonate with me as a teenager. And I think it was the context of personal finance. If you're looking at personal finance, there were a couple things that came to mind. It's too complicated. It won't make a difference. I have time. It's out of reach. And I don't even know where to get started or what I should do first. All of those limiting beliefs kept me from doing what we talk about now and and taking action. I think that FI basically obliterates all of those. It puts it into a achievable goal with a relatively short period of time. It demystifies it, allows you to take ownership of it. It's empowering. It puts all of it inside of a message that can go viral. But I don't think a lot of people know about it at this point. It's relatively new for it being framed this particular way and getting the sort of attention that it's getting now that we reference. People haven't been exposed to this community, but I think that it takes care of all those things that my teenage self rejected the HR department when they told me that I should probably put money into my 401k. The messaging that we're talking about now, the content that's being created by this community, it handles all of that and it it's it's addictive. And to some degree, it's using... FOMO, that fear of missing out for the greater good. And I think that is what I I think, I believe. And you know, you can never go back. So maybe my teenage self would have just not been ready for it. But I, I have to believe knowing how addicted I am basically to this content now that some portion of that would have resonated with myself because I considered myself a logical person then. And you have to look at what kept me from latching on at that point in time. And I just didn't see how it would make the difference to my, and, and there's some concepts that frankly, I didn't get. I clearly didn't understand compound interest. I clearly didn't understand the rule of 72. As soon as I could put all of those into a shorter timeline and I could visualize what these two different versions of my life's path would be, I chose the obvious choice. That's all I did. And I've, I've said many times. And, and I still feel this way. I am the reluctant frugalist. You know, over time, being around you has had some impact, but you're the first to know that for me, frugality is a truly, it is a means to an end. It is not the end in and of itself, but it's so powerful when it gets, and frankly, it's partially out of jealousy, right? When I met you and I saw the life that you had designed for yourself, it wasn't a life designed around stuff. It was a life based around value. And by making that choice of value, you were able, you had all this time back. And so maybe I had this income. Yeah, I have this great income but I had no time. It was all spent in service of my debt and in service of this hamster wheel. And as soon as you see it, as soon as you see the irony of spending all of your time to finance stuff that you don't have time to use and don't have room to store, it's, it's just becomes an obvious choice. And so, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of other feedback. There are, there are plenty of ways that you take this particular conversation, but 
I think that my 17-year-old self would have really resonated with the stories, the people that we've highlighted on this community, as opposed to, oh, put 5% away in your 401k and you'll be able to replace your income by the age of 60. This is going to be good. Trust me. Wall Street's got your back. It's just that didn't and probably never would have resonated with me. Yeah. And Jonathan, one thing you mentioned in there just quickly is I thought I was logical. Everybody thinks they have it figured out and they're logical, but they don't have that growth mindset, right? They don't seek out new sources of information that could teach them something. I think that's to our great detriment here. Trying to figure out the credibility of sources of information is is crucial, obviously, and that's a life skill as well. But I think really just trying to grow, trying to learn new things. Some of the stuff we talk about on this podcast, like intermittent fasting, we have people respond on the Facebook group. Oh, so it's a big deal that you're starving yourself to lose weight. And it's like, no, that's the polar opposite of what we're doing here. We're trying to take information that cutting edge science is saying can help you, your entire body run better. You're maybe lessen your chances of getting cancer, like things like this. This is what the science is saying. I'm not just trying to have a caloric deficit to lose weight. I mean, that's ridiculous. I would never do that. So for me, it's how can I learn new information that's going to help me in every aspect of my life? Like I would have never been caught dead meditating 15 years ago. How could that have even crossed my plate? But now I try to do it every single morning by listening to the Headspace app because I hear over and over again how it benefits people. So those are two examples in my own life where I would have potentially been closed off to something. But what I've allowed to happen is this growth mindset in my life. And that means I take in new information and I try to learn and I try to learn and grow. And it's really that simple. All right. Well, I do have a optimistic final story and I'll go ahead and let you talk about it, Brad. Someone in our Facebook group, their child lost a tooth and it's a second generation Phi win. Take it away. Yeah, Jonathan, this was the cutest post of the week for sure. Katie posted here a big picture of her daughter, Shirley, who had lost a tooth. And she said, as I'm making dinner and listening to choose a Phi, my six-year-old daughter, Shirley shouts, I just lost my tooth. Before we call all the grandparents, she says, can you tell Choose FI? Then she starts shouting, Brad, I lost a tooth. Oh, man, this is so great. <laughs> why did she want to tell you about her tooth, Brad? I don't know. It's so, it's so great. Well, I have no maybe idea Maybe the why. tooth fairy is going to put some money inside of VTSAX. Is that, is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what Katie keeps on saying. She said, this was the same kid who asked me a couple months ago if her save money jar was working for her and how she could get some low cost index funds. <laughs> How old is she again? <laughs> She's six years old. I'm telling oh, you, man, man, if a six-year-old gets it, I could have gotten it at 17 if I had been exposed to the messaging the right way. I mean, this stuff can capture the imagination and it's fun to be a part of a community of like-minded individuals. Uh, so awesome. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing. <laughs> yeah, this is great. And, and just to put a bow on this is my daughter, Molly, actually lost the very same tooth yesterday. So literally Molly and Shirley both uh, just had visits from the tooth fairy here. So yeah, we'll see what, what Miles does with her money. I suspect it'll go into Vanguard before too long as well. So pretty cool. All right, guys. Well, unfortunately, that is going to bring this episode to a close. Now, as you know, we like to finish every episode by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. And there's three books that we offer. The first is J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth. The second is Dominic Cortuccio's book, Design Your Future. And the third is Vincent Puglisi's book, Freelance to Freedom. If you want to enter the drawing, all you need to do, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Follow the instructions there to leave us a review on Stitcher or iTunes. Then send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com, letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under. Every week on the Friday Roundup, we announce the winner. We give away one book for every five written reviews that we get. And Brad, how many winners do we have today? All right, Jonathan, we have one winner today, and the winner is Jen. And Jen calls the podcast life-changing. I just want to warn everyone thinking about listening to this podcast that it will change your life. I've never written a review for a podcast before and rarely listened to podcasts a few months ago. But after discovering Choosefy about four months ago, I've been trying to catch up with all of the episodes. In just a few months, I've maxed out my IRA, put myself on track to max out my 457B next year, gotten excited about having an HSA available at work, and started looking for a side hustle. Each podcast 
and the hot seat leads me on a rabbit hole of new blogs to read, books and articles to look up, and amazing guests I need to learn more about, not to mention all of the actionable tips I can implement immediately. I've since joined the Chooseify Facebook and local groups, and I'm headed out to a Camp Fi in just a few weeks. I'm a few years out from being financially independent, but feel like I've finally found my tribe. I'm not a minimalist, not exactly a frugalist. I'm a valuist. Listen at your own risk because the fire is spreading and it'll take over your life. Wow, Jen, that's amazing. Yeah, I can't say the fire is spreading after that. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, my friends, if you got value from the show, just take one second, press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. I'm going to say it anyways. The fire is spreading, my friends. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.